We're in the second wave of our message series that's laid out on my t-shirt this morning, No Perfect People Allowed. Each week in this series, we're meeting an individual in the Bible who had issues, personal junk that most of us would expect to disqualify them from being used by God for anything that really mattered. And yet God did significant things in them and through them. Their worst moments, the worst seasons in their life didn't ruin their life. God still did a good thing. And as we study their lives, we're encouraged and reminded that our issues and our failures don't have to doom the rest of our future because God is bigger than our issues. Each of these messages is designed to encourage you and build your faith, but it's also designed to help you encourage other people. I guarantee you know somebody right now or will very soon know somebody who will need to be ministered to around the issue that we're going to be dealing with today. So if you think I'm good, tune in so that the Lord can use you to minister to other people. You know, there's only two kinds of people in the room this morning. Those of us who have made huge mistakes in our past and those of us who are willing to lie about having made huge mistakes in our past. And that's why we love a redemption story more than a straight victory story. We like a story about the screw up who made good on a second, third or fourth or fifth chance. In fact, the more chances they got before they got it right, the more encouraging we find the story. We don't like the story about the guy who never screwed up. When you hear about the athlete who was just born and came out the womb a superstar and and never ever lost track of everything and stayed totally focused and then fulfilled his potential with no bumps along the road, that's about the least inspiring story you could ever hear in your life. Here's a secret. People are more inspired and encouraged by your screw-ups than they are your victories. They want to hear about the victories, but after they hear about the screw-ups. The screw-ups is what draws them in and makes them say, hey, this might actually apply to me. So I thought I would bless you today with the story of my most embarrassing moment. So here's the scene. I was about 22 years old. I was working at a church in Texas. I was the youth pastor slash worship pastor slash landscaper slash slash slash. And we had the chance to go to the biggest water park in the world. It's called Schlitterbahn, and it's in New Braunfels, Texas. And we were there, hot Texas summer day, and we're lining up for this ride, which has uh, about five lanes. And it's one of these rides where you start, and they have gates that actually open, and you go down on a bodyboard down this straight slide, which does this. And the idea is you're going to race your friends. The ride is just crawling, and it's so hot. Everyone's whining and complaining in the line. And I need to preface this by telling you, I grew up in school in probably the last generation before people finally figured out that using the term retard as an insult is not really a kind thing to do. It's not appropriate. But I grew up still in the age where nobody really cared about that. And so this was still working its way out of my vocabulary. And so what happens is the ride's just crawling. All five gates open. Four people go shooting down. One guy's just staying up there. Everyone's going, oh, come on. And I go, oh, what's up with the retard who's not going down? <laughs> Guy comes sliding down. You can already tell what's going to happen, right? He gets up and he stands up and he starts jumping and he's so happy. And all I can say is it's very evident from the way he's celebrating that he is, in fact, mentally retarded. And everyone in the entire line just turns and looks at me like this. And I was like, it's true. I'm a terrible human being. <laughs> That was a terrible, terrible moment. Oh, I just, I cringe even thinking about that. The sheer moment of horror of just. 
But you know, most of us, our worst moments are not necessarily things that we can look back on and laugh about. Past failures can have incredible power. It's amazing how something that happened years ago or decades ago can still have so much power today over our lives. How many people in the world, how many of us live on edge, live in fear that something from their past may be brought to light? How do you move on from a season that you're deeply ashamed of? How do you move on from a lifestyle you wish you'd never gotten into? The good news is that the Bible answers that question again and again and again, and the Bible shows how God works in that area in real people's lives. Last week, we looked at repentance, turning away from sin, and we learned that repentance has the power to restore our relationship with the Lord, and that if we repent, God can still do good things in our lives, even through our worst failures. This week, we're going to look at how do, we, how do we move past the shame of our past failures. When repentance is done and it's sincerely completed and you're walking in repentance, how do you move past the shame that sometimes lingers? God used the man we're going to meet today to write two-thirds of the New Testament after he had lived a dark, dark life. He hadn't spent his life getting ready to be used by Jesus. He had spent his life working against Jesus. Today we're going to look at the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 22, Paul tells us he was born a Jew. He was raised in Jerusalem where he was taught by Gamaliel, who was considered by many to be the most prestigious Jewish religious teacher of the time. Paul was taught strictly to obey all of the Old Testament laws, including the thousands of laws that had been added on by the religious authorities throughout the centuries. And Paul was zealous to do so. He was eager to do so. Something in him just clicked with following all these rules. And the idea we need to have is that Paul was an intense guy from birth. Whatever he did, he was obsessive about it. He did it with all his heart and soul and energy. As a young Pharisee, Paul was a man on the rise in the ruling religious Jewish system. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish political council of the day. Most likely, Paul was in line to possibly even lead the Sanhedrin one day. He was the rising superstar of the Jewish religious system. And when Christianity began to explode after the death and resurrection of Jesus and after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, the Jewish religious leaders considered Christianity to be a blasphemous threat to Judaism. They called it the way, and they set about persecuting Christians anywhere they could find them. And Paul was right in the middle of this, and eager to be an overachiever, eager to be the model Jewish religious leader, Paul set about to persecute the Christians more intensely than anybody else. He wanted to be the best at it. Acts 7 and 22 tell us that as a young man, Saul watched over the coats of the religious leaders as they stoned Stephen the apostle to death. He was the first of the 12 to be martyred. And Paul, who was then named Saul, watched it happen and held the coats of the men who stoned him to death. He participated in the martyrdom of the first of the 12 disciples. That's how bloody his hands were. Now we're going to hear from Paul himself, but I want to set the scene for you. Paul has been summoned to meet with the Roman governor 
over the region of Judah, of northern Israel. It's Herod Agrippa II. Paul had been preaching the gospel all over the Roman Empire, and it was extremely polarizing, extremely disruptive to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so Paul ends up being apprehended by the Jewish religious authorities. They bring him to King Agrippa, who wants to find out what is the deal with this message Paul is preaching? What's going on? And after exchanging some pleasantries, Paul begins to tell King Agrippa about his past in his own words. Let's begin reading in Acts 26. We'll start in verse 4. Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. So in other words, all the Jews know about my upbringing. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee, a religious zealot who was committed to obtaining salvation by a works-based system. He rolled with the Pharisees, the most judgmental group of guys on the scene at the time, and Paul was good at being a Pharisee. He was self-reliant, arrogant, and, and even a little cocky. Skip down to verse nine, and Paul says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, deep down, he was convinced that this was the right thing to do to oppose Jesus. And then Paul gets specific about his past in the next verse. Paul doesn't say, but I don't really want to talk about that. God's forgiven me, so we don't need to discuss that. No, he gets into detail, verse 10. He says, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul was rolling from city to city with letters from the Sanhedrin saying this man has authority to round up Christians, beat them up, torture them, throw them in prison, and then the local council in each city would vote on whether or not they were to be put to death. Paul says, every time I had the chance, I voted for them to be put to death. Verse 11, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Paul is so zealous, he's so obsessed about persecuting the church, he chases Christians out of Israel, into foreign cities, into Syria, into Lebanon, into the surrounding regions. And he's beating and torturing Christians. He's he's not just a legalist. He wants them to renounce Christ. And he's torturing them to try and get them to do that. Other translations render verse 11 as Paul saying he was obsessed with persecuting them. Would you agree that Paul's past can accurately be described as dark? That's a pretty dark past, absolutely. After honestly laying out his past... Paul now shifts to declaring his present and his future. And in the next few verses, Paul reveals the secret to breaking free from your past and allowing it to become an asset in your future. Verse 12, while thus occupied, while I was busy doing that, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
So can you imagine, Paul is on his way to persecute more Christians. He's on the the way to Damascus, which is in Syria. He's left Israel, because apparently there's no Christians that he knows about in Israel that he can go persecute, so he's chasing them out into Syria. And while he's on his way there, he has this life-altering encounter. He is knocked off his horse by a bright light. Everything comes to a halt, and this brief conversation occurs in the next verse, verse 15. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This would be for me another one of those moments we just call, oh crap, moments in the Bible. When the blinding light that has knocked you off your horse, brought everything to a halt, put you on the ground, taken away your sight, a voice from heaven says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. Wow, I was so off on this. What a a terrifying moment for Paul. There's no theological discussion. Paul doesn't say, how do I rectify this with the scriptures? Just the undeniable power of God literally blinding him with his glory. And this happens all the time in various ways. This has happened to many of us. Jesus suddenly shows up, reveals himself to us, And no matter what we do, we now know there's no turning back. We can't deny he's real. He's shown us to himself in some way. He's opened our eyes and our hearts to see. And we can't deny that he's real. The arguments just don't matter anymore. This was Paul's moment. Now get the progression here. Jesus interrupts Paul's journey. Jesus interrupts Paul's life. He confronts Paul in such a powerful way that Paul can't lie to himself anymore, that Jesus is not God. Paul now realizes he's been living the wrong way this whole time. So Jesus reveals himself to Paul and reveals to Paul that Paul has been living as an enemy of God. And so what does Jesus do next to Saul? Does he say, stay down there in the dirt? Think about what you've done. Think about who you are. Think about all the terrible decisions you've made and what an awful person you really are. You sit there, you think about it. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus keeps talking. Underline this next sentence. This is what he says. Jesus says to Paul, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. He says, rise and stand on your feet. You see, Jesus revealed himself to Paul for a purpose. He wasn't just saved from something. He was saved to something. He was brought from death to life, and life must be lived. And that's what Jesus is telling Paul right now. Write this down. It's your first fill-in. Jesus knocked Paul down and then commanded him to stand in his new calling. Jesus knocked Paul down and then commanded him to stand in his new calling. Jesus had to knock Paul down to get his attention, but Jesus did not intend for Paul to live his life knocked down. And this is where Satan shows up in the lives of many, many believers. Satan will use your past to condemn you over and over and over again. And many believers are suffocating under the weight of shame and guilt from their past. Jesus wanted Paul to know there's no room for condemnation to rule his life. You gotta remember, Paul had a seriously dark past. He had killed followers of Jesus, beaten, tortured followers of Jesus. 
But now Jesus was telling Paul, he wanted him to get up and stand on his feet. Jesus was telling him, I, I don't condemn you. You're not condemned. And his living under condemnation was not going to be pleasing to God. Do you realize that? God, God is not pleased or impressed when we live our lives in guilt and shame over our past. He's not impressed as though that's some sort of penance. He's not impressed as though his work on the cross was insufficient. The missing ingredient is your guilt and shame. We need to add that. And you need to walk in that so that you can be forgiven. He's not impressed by that. He doesn't need that. He doesn't want that from us. Paul himself would write famously in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And if we're ever gonna overcome our pasts and move into the future Jesus has for us, we gotta be willing to let go of condemnation. If Jesus didn't want Paul, the best persecutor of Christians, of the day among the Jews. If he didn't want Paul to live his life in condemnation, why would you think he wants you to live your life in condemnation? Why would you think that? What condemning voices are you living under in your life? Maybe it's a parent who told you you'd never amount to anything, a coach who told you you were terrible at something, a boss that said you're a failure. Maybe it's your own voice that keeps just telling you you don't deserve what you have. You don't deserve the good things in your life and you don't deserve any good things in the future. What are the voices that are limiting you right now that are putting you under condemnation? Here's the good news. The more you and I silence the condemning voices, the easier it gets. The easier it gets. Not that they ever go away completely, but with practice and discipline and time, those voices will get quieter and quieter. The key is to replace condemning messages with the truth, the truth of who Jesus says we are in his word. I challenge you to do a word study in the New Testament of the phrase you are. Just do a search for you are in the New Testament and read everything the Bible says about who you are. Because when you know who Jesus says you are, that becomes a lot more powerful than who Satan says you are. Look in the New Testament, you'll find that you are a friend of God. You are beloved, you are precious, you are highly esteemed, you are known, you are more than a conqueror. That's what the Bible says. I wanna share this truth with you. You know, the Holy Spirit can't help you to remember scriptures you've never read. That's profound, right? You can't remember something you never knew. This is why being in the word matters so much. You've got to read it, take it in, read it again and again before the Holy Spirit can help you to remember the right thing at the right time. We talk all the time about you got to know what the word says, stand on the truth of the word, refute the lies of the enemy with the truth of the word. You got to know the truth of the word and then the Holy Spirit will bring it to your remembrance. If you're not in the word, get in there because you'll never remember something you've never read, something that you've never known before. That list of everything we are in Christ goes on and on and on. And the more we focus on that, the less we'll believe what the enemy says about who we are because of our past. The more we let the light in, the less darkness can stay. Check out verse 16 again. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So don't miss what Jesus is telling Paul. 
God's redemptive plan is that Paul's pain and Paul's past become his platform. Let me say that again. God's plan is that Paul's pain and his past become his platform. Jesus' intention was not just to forgive Paul of his past and release him from the condemnation of it. God's plan was to leverage Paul's past to minister to others in the future. It was precisely because Paul had experienced all that he had in his past that he was positioned to be used so powerfully by God in the future. Paul's past positioned him to be used by God in the future. It positioned him. Now, please don't hear that and go, oh man, I need to go out there and get a past. Don't, don't, don't do that, okay? The best testimony is I wasn't a moron and then God saved me. You don't need the moron part to have a good testimony, okay? So in the middle of a world where religion was all about what you did, the rituals you practiced, the sacrifices you made, the angry gods who were hard to please, in the middle of that world, comes Paul with a message that says, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Let me tell you where doing everything I thought I needed to do to get to God got me. Let me tell you where following every single rule got me. I ended up being an enemy of God. Let me tell you what I did to the people of God. And let me tell you, when I encountered God, I found grace and I found mercy. When you understand how Paul got saved, who he was before he got saved. You understand why he can't stop writing about grace. He just cannot get over what Jesus has done in his life. He just can never get over it till the day his earthly life ends, the Jesus that he met on that road to Damascus. He just can't get over that. He never gets over that. I hope we never get over the Jesus that we meet. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. He says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul didn't try to sanitize his past. He didn't try to deny it or erase it, hoping it would just fade away over time. He didn't create a fictional past so that he could have a better ministry. You remember, he's going town to town to places where people haven't heard of him. He doesn't have to own up to that. He can just conveniently leave that part out of his story. But it's the center of his story. It's the center of his testimony. And Paul confessed it freely. And over the years, thousands of people responded to Paul's preaching in part because they looked at him and they said, if God can forgive him, then God can forgive me too. He can forgive me too. And if God can do that for Paul, if God can do that for me, then I know he can do it for you as well. God wants to use the pain, the brokenness, the darkness of your past as a platform for future ministry in your life. Your your past has the potential to open the greatest doors of ministry you will ever walk through in your life. If you let Jesus take your past, transform it and use it for his glory. If you let him leverage it. Some of you are hearing this right now. You need to stop cursing your past. You're so busy being angry at your past mistakes and failures that you're forfeiting the power of your story to be used by God to minister to other people. You need to stop minimizing your past or pretending it didn't happen or doesn't exist. You know, what happened can't be changed, but what happens in the future can be changed. You can choose what you do with your past from now on. Write this down. A minimized past 
is a minimized platform. A minimized past is a minimized platform. And you'll find that minimized pain is pain that still has control over you. Stop minimizing and start surrendering your past to Jesus. There's a difference. He can do far more with your past than you can cover up or you can minimize. He wants to take your past and make something good out of its ugliness. That's what he does. That's just who he is. The reason we don't do that naturally is because we're concerned about how we'll look. Jesus invites us to be more concerned about how he'll look if we share our past. And here's what I mean by that. When you give your past to Jesus, truly you'll adopt the attitude that says, as long as my story brings glory to Jesus, then he can use it however he wants. He can use it however he wants. And that change only happens when our self-esteem becomes rooted in Christ. When we care more about his approval than anyone else's, then we're really able to let go of our past and give it to God. Because when we care about his approval, we're not trying to impress anybody. So if we share our past and someone goes, man, you're a terrible person. We're not shattered and destroyed. Because the Lord says, hey, I'm pleased with you. I'm blessed that you shared that. You have no idea that in seven years that person's gonna remember what you just shared when they hit their rock bottom. And when your self-esteem is in God, as long as he's saying, well done, good job, then you're good, you're good. When you study the life and teachings of the Apostle Paul, you'll find he never bragged about his past, but he never minimized it. He never denied it either. He surrendered it to Jesus and then used it as a testimony of what God can do in broken people. He made himself the example of a broken person. Your past failures make you a great candidate to testify to the goodness and grace of Jesus. We've all been given different pasts for a reason. My past won't look like yours, and yours doesn't look like anybody else's, but that's on purpose. You know, God needs all of us to own our past, because when we do, the most magnificent picture of grace begins to appear and is shown to the whole world. God's design is that the church would be made up of people whose pasts include broken relationships, broken families, drug addiction, compulsive lying, career obsession, money obsession, everything under the sun. Because when you put that all together, here's the picture you get. Whatever is going on in your life, the grace of God is greater. That's the picture that emerges. That's what the church is. And when you minimize your past, when you hide it, when you refuse to even acknowledge it, you are robbing the church and the world that doesn't know Jesus a part of that picture of grace. You're part of that picture. We need your part. People need to hear your part. People need to know your part. And we need to be a church and a group of people who cares more about Jesus getting glory than anybody judging us because of our past. Jesus told Paul why he was rescuing him and changing his past. Read verses 17 and 18 with me. Jesus says to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus wanted to leverage Paul's past so that Others' eyes could be opened. Your story, too, has the power to open people's eyes to Jesus like nothing else could for them. Your story, the unique pieces of your story 
are going to be used by God to minister to specific people that God wants to bring across your path and into your life. Your story, not anybody else's. Jesus told Paul that his past had the power to take people from darkness to light, which is ironic because one person's darkness, when yielded to Christ, has the power to bring light into another person's life. Jesus told Paul, hey, I want to take your past and help use it to lead other people to forgiveness, to wholeness, to healing. God has uniquely allowed your past to occur in part so that your unique story can minister to people who need to hear your unique story. You know, the Bible doesn't say everything happens for a reason. What does the Bible say? It says, in everything, God will do good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So you don't look back on your past and say, oh, so it's the will of God that all that happened to me. No, it's not. But the goodness of God can take the broken things and do something amazing through them, make something beautiful out of them. That's the promise of the word of God. The terrible things you and I have done and that have been done to us are not God's plan but God will take those broken pieces and make them into something good. That's the promise of scripture. As we've said before, the blessing for the believer is that no pain is ever wasted because God can take it and make something good out of it. Jesus also told Paul that he wanted to use his past to help other people find a place in the family of God, the family of God. I just want you to really think about this. The things in your life that you might think are the greatest marks against you are probably the things that have the greatest potential to bring other people into the family of God. You know, the reason a lot of people think Christians are hypocrites is because we're so quick to try and sanitize our past. We're so quick to pretend that none of that ever happened. We don't ever need to talk about that again. But man, the key to staying in love with Jesus is never forgetting the God of grace who met you that first time. When you and I deserve judgment and wrath, we instead found a God of mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Don't ever let that story get old. That story never, ever gets old for any of us. One of the most profound things Paul ever wrote, in my humble opinion, is that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The goodness of God. Paul was so overwhelmed by the kindness of God that he was willing to be used by the Lord in any way the Lord saw fit. Even if that meant God said, well, here's what I want to do, Paul. I want to put your past on display for the whole world to see. That's what I want to do. That's how I'm going to use you. Paul's response is, you've been so kind to me. You own my life, including my past, including my story. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul's writing to his pastoral protege, Timothy. Just listen to how Paul describes himself and his spiritual journey. Listen to the conclusion Paul has come to about the work of God in his life. It's on your outlines, I think. It says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry although I was formerly a blasphemer. So get this, the actual sentence structure is Paul saying, he counted me faithful, and then verse 13, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, even though I was all that, he came to me and he saw faithfulness in me that I had never displayed. He saw me as something that I was not yet. But I obtained mercy 
because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul's saying, I'm the chief of sinners. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. This is why God saved me. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering, that's all patience, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says, he saved me so that I could be the model, the example of the patience and grace of God. That's why he saved me. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When it comes to the worst parts of our past, our first preference is always that they just disappear, never to be spoken of again. Isn't that the truth? Most of us think that would be the best thing that could ever happen. That's not real life. And when we try to make that real life, what ends up happening is that we live our whole lives in fear of our past being revealed. Because thinking it can disappear is a lie. It'll never leave you. And its grip and its fear over you will remain. It'll stay there. We live under constant condemnation as the devil whispers things in our souls like, man, if anybody knew about that, nobody would want anything to do with you. The past never disappears. But there is an option where it loses all power over you and actually gets reversed. Instead of creating death in your life, it creates life in your life. Here's how that works. Write this down. It's a three-step process. The first is simply repent. Repent. And we talked about this last week. To repent is to acknowledge that your sin is sin and that you need God's forgiveness. Make whatever changes you need to make to walk away from that sin and then rejoice that you've been forgiven. So the first step in dealing with your past is repent. Repent. Secondly, turn condemnation into celebration. I'll explain this in a minute. Turn condemnation into celebration. When the voice of condemnation from Satan shows up, allow it to remind you of what Jesus has done for you. When Satan says, man, I can't believe the things you did. Can you believe that thing you did? You're a horrible person. You know, there's some peace in saying, you know, that's 100% true. I did that and it was awful and it's true. But you know what? Jesus saved me and forgive me. And I never get over the fact that he loved me more than my sin. He loved me through my sin and he's forgiven me. And then you turn that to praise because Satan doesn't deserve a long conversation. You begin to talk to Jesus instead of the enemy and you say, man, Jesus, I'm just reminded right now. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that where I should have found wrath, I found mercy. Thank you that despite my best efforts to mess my life up beyond repair, you've been gracious to me and even today you're doing good things in my life. You do that and praise just begins to rise out of that condemnation and suddenly there's celebration instead of condemnation. And you're able to say, oh, oh Satan, thanks for that reminder of what Jesus saved me from. Thanks for that reminder of what Jesus has forgiven me from. The Bible says, happy is the man who's been forgiven much. And you're able to say, that's me. 
Thank you for the reminder. I've been forgiven much. I've got a lot to be thankful for. I forget that sometimes. That's why communion is so important. If you can take it every week, take it every week. It's the reminder that we have found mercy and grace in Jesus. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Thirdly, then you let Jesus turn your mess into your ministry. Let him turn your mess into your ministry. The worst parts of your past have equipped you to encourage and minister to other people. The Lord will get those people into your life so you can share honestly about your past and then share honestly about what the Lord has done in your life despite that. And when you're testifying to the goodness of God, when your mess becomes your ministry, it loses its condemning power. It loses its condemning power. When dark things are brought into the light of Jesus, they become a testament to his grace rather than an evidence file for perpetual condemnation. When your past stays in the dark, Satan loves that. It's just an evidence file he can open at any point and remind you of. When it's brought into the light, it's just a testimony to the grace of Jesus. What's God's plan for dealing with the worst parts of your past? Repent, turn condemnation into celebration, and let Jesus turn your mess into your ministry. Write this down. This is the real choice. Everything we're talking about today comes down to this. If you forget everything else, remember this. The worst parts of your past will either bring shame to you or glory to God. The worst parts of your past will either bring shame to you or glory to God. That's really the choice for the believer. What is it going to be? Is it going to be a secret that never happened that continually puts you under guilt and condemnation and shame? Or is it going to be part of the story of the grace of Jesus in your life? The goodness of God in your life. When Jesus radically interrupts your darkness with his bright light, Christian culture can sometimes be eager to move too fast. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we think when a person gets saved today, they should be preaching tomorrow or leading a ministry in the area they were delivered from tomorrow. And I see this a lot with celebrities in the American church. It, it really, it makes me cringe because here's what happens. A, a celebrity or someone with some notoriety gets radically saved. And the next Sunday, they're on a stage in a church giving their testimony. Because everyone's like, look, look who we got. This is a good catch. People know who this guy is. But the thing is, they thrust them up on the stage and they forget they just got saved. They haven't started working through their past. They haven't started working through their fallenness. None of that has happened yet. And you're shining a spotlight on them. You're setting them up to fall and to fail because you're saying you should be ready to be the model of everything a Christian is right away. How many of you still in process? I'm still in process, right? I'm still in process. It's a terrible idea to do that because although they've been saved, they... They still need some help working things out. When everything changes in a moment, it's glorious, but your head is also spinning as you now try and figure out what, what is Jesus, what does this mean in my family? What does this mean in my friendships, at my work? What does this mean for where I hang out and what my hobbies are when Jesus saves us? It's not like everything's immediately fixed and we don't have issues related to our past and our personality and our decisions that have been made over the years. We need help working through that stuff. Think about Paul. He'd spent his whole life seeing things one way. 
He was so convinced he was right. He was ready to kill people over his beliefs. He had seen everything through one lens his whole life. And then in a moment, all of that is brought crashing down and he's confronted with the truth. You think he might've been a little bit confused? Do you think Paul might've wondered, how, how could I have missed this? How could I have been so convinced the other way was the truth? What about the believers Paul had beaten and tortured and voted to have killed? In a moment, they went from being enemies to being brothers and sisters. And Paul has their blood on his hands. You think Paul ever woke up at night from a nightmare over the things he had done to the people of God? You think he ever threw up and got physically sick when he realized what he had done? You think he was ready to just jump in and start teaching a Bible study? Pretty much every man who's used mightily by God in the Bible has a, a wilderness experience, a time when they weren't ministering to other people. The Lord is just ministering to them intensely. God pulled them away to get some stillness and space in their life so that they could hear from him. After his Damascus Road conversion, Christian history and some hints in the Bible tell us that Paul went and spent three years in a small town in the wilderness of Arabia, pretty much alone. You know what he was doing? He's working through his issues. He was praying, he was pouring over the scriptures, trying to understand what had happened to him. He's being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. He, he was dealing with the guilt and shame and coming to terms with what he had done and who he had been and how he was gonna deal with his past in the future. You know what was happening? The Holy Spirit was being Paul's counselor in that time. He's being counseled by the Holy Spirit. Paul needed that and many times you and I will need that. If you've got junk that you just can't seem to get over from your past, see a Christian counselor. Just do whatever it takes to deal with it. If your past is still haunting your present, take the time and make the investment to dig that stuff out. If you need help being connected with a good Christian counselor, we'll help you do that. Just write something on your connection card and, and we'll help you get connected with somebody. But please realize this is your future you're talking about. We're not talking about your past. We're talking about your past's ability to affect your future and rob you of your future if you don't deal with some things. And sometimes we look at that and we say, oh, you know, I don't want to pay the cost to see a counselor. And the reality is you're just spending that much on your cell phone. We're talking about your, your future, your life. We're talking about your ability to have a, a biblical, healthy relationship in your life. We're talking about your ability to trust people. We're talking about the biggest things that exist in life. Do whatever it takes to get the help that is needed. There is nobody who comes out of dark things without having issues that need to get dealt with. Nobody. It's not a knock to go get help to go see a good counselor. We, we need that. We need that help. There weren't, Christian counseling wasn't really a thing when Paul was around, you know? The church was being persecuted and nobody at that time was thinking, hey, you know what we need? Christian counseling practices. That wasn't really a thought. It was like, let's try to not get killed this week. So we have some benefits in and around the church today. The worst parts of your past will either bring shame to you or glory to God. Let me say it this way, right now, 
for every single one of us, the worst parts of your past are, present tense, actively, either bringing shame to you or glory to God. Only one of those two things. Only one of those two things. If you've got secret sin, if you've got unconfessed sin, I want to encourage you to deal with it. The Lord will lead you in how to do that. The Holy Spirit will tell you if you need to talk to someone. Holy Spirit will tell you if you need to confess to someone. Holy Spirit will tell you if you need to apologize to someone. Just be open to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you. We've got a coming time of worship and prayer. Communion's in the back. Take it and just, just ask the Holy Spirit. If there's something you just can't get over, just say, what do you want me to do with this? What do you need me to do? And just be bold enough to, to do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Listen to the Holy Spirit, obey the Holy Spirit, and be free. The worst parts of your past will either bring shame to you or glory to God. May we live free and choose to bring glory to God. May we allow our weakness to point to his greatness. May our failures point to his perfection. May our past failures reveal his exceeding grace and mercy and kindness. May our testimony not be, I was saved. From what? I don't want to talk about that. I'll say from a lot. I was saved from a lot. May the worst parts of our past be used to bring glory to God. Glory to God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you that you do not intend us to live under condemnation. You do not intend us to live under guilt and shame. The honest truth is that if we are, we are outside of your will because that's not your will. Lord, you are not impressed when we continue to act as though we need to do a part in the forgiveness process. You've done the whole work on the cross and you've said, stand to your feet, rise up. I got a life for you to live. Start living it. Father, help us to let go of the things that you've forgiven us of. And Lord, help us to realize that those things don't need to have the power of shame over us. Lord, they can be used to bring attention and glory to you. Every time they come up, every time the voice of the accuser is raised in our spirits, Lord, would it only remind us of what we've been saved from? Would it only turn us to praise you one more time, to thank you one more time? for what you've done in us, what you've saved us from, what you've forgiven us of. Lord, we are so thankful that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We receive that and we believe that this morning, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. 
If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.